and welcome to the Trash Tapes podcast as part of the Enigmatic Productions Network. If you love bad cinema and incredible deep dives into cult film, then you have come to the right place. So if you like what you hear and want to support us, you can do so by donating some funds to our Buy Me A Coffee website, along with the ACAR supporter feature. All of these can be found in the description below. And now, on with the show. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Watch out for visions of glamour and murder. Johan Chapal presents some high-class sleaze on the not-so-trash reviews. Hello movie buffs and cinephiles, and welcome to another episode of the Not-So-Trash Reviews. My name is Johan Schapal, your psychic host with high-class fashion and a taste for cinematic blood. On this episode, I'm joined by film historian and co-host of the CineLit podcast, Daryl Buxton, as we review the 1978 disco giallo, The Eyes of Laura Mars. It was a wonderful examination into the world of 70s chic, as well as a little exploration to the works of Faye Dunaway, who will be making another appearance soon on the other trashier podcast. What made this review and, well, this whole film so interesting is how, despite it being what's considered to be a sleazy thriller with sex, blood and clear exploitation of some very taboo subjects, it opened a world of discussion about the art world, We'll be exploring the idea of cultural status theory using this film as our subject, but what does that even mean? Well, it's time to grab our finest wine and get comfy, because we're going to define the difference between highbrow and lowbrow. The debate between what is high art versus low art is one that has been a continuous cycle through the philosophical world. It is usually hard to define and is always open to reinterpretation, as well as the growth of societal norms, culture, and the overall populace. It is almost the great divide. But what we're going to try to do is find some kind of definition. Artist Mats Felser states that the concept of high and low culture can be traced back all the way to the ancient civilizations, but it's mostly linked back to those who focus on the intellectual and the mastery of the craft, compared to those who went with the popular and the use of the simplistic utility, as it was called. 
It was only until writers and philosophers started to examine this that a line was almost drawn. In the art world, high art can be seen as those who have inspired by the classics and traditional fine art techniques. We're looking at works along the lines of Leonardo da Vinci, for example. While low art uses themes that the regular man might recognize. So in this case, we're looking at pop art. So we're looking at subjects like heroes, celebrities, and soup cans compared to Greek gods. Both are seen today as pure art, but in its own paradoxical way, provide their own classification of what pure art can be. Both of them can be seen at a high level, but some of them can also be seen as a low level. Who presents what is highbrow and lowbrow art anyway? Well, what we might consider as high culture has always been connected to the bourgeoisie, also known as the upper middle class, where experiences are seen as intellectually stimulating, unique, and linked to the elite status, while low culture is seen as common and simplistic, with no finesse, sophistication, and only fit for purpose. So the original argument of things such as opera versus pop music, theater versus comic books, poetry versus pornography, art house versus blockbuster. Andrew Murphy and John Potts in their book Culture and Technology examines this theory, but now using the changes in the modern world, as there's now a whole new way of establishing the zeitgeist, especially with new tech. Let's look at a recent example. Kate Bush can be considered a bit of a high-brow musical artist that only a particular niche group of fans may have known or connected with in its original state, but has now gotten popular again thanks to the use of her music in what could be considered a popular low-brow show, Stranger Things. It has introduced her work to a whole new generation of people who may not have had the opportunity to do so otherwise. There was no attempt at gatekeeping here, and so it organically grew. It is the viral sensation that allows us, the low class, to have a say and no longer have the elite choose. Now in cinema, this is a little different. We obviously have the idea of the dumb blockbuster and the high classy art house film, but cinema explores this a little differently by trying to break the whole cultural status into question by how it blends both of these together. Now, examples of this could be Michael Haneke's funny games and the use of violence, graphic sex in the movie Short Bus, the exploration of the taboo in the works of Gaspar Noé, and even the use of high-class stars in high-camp schlocky genres, such as Betty Davis and Joan Crawford in the horror thriller Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. So, now we have this movie to examine it under the arty lens. I want to ask you, the listeners, what do you define as classy and as smutty? What is the difference between being sophisticated and being uncultured? Is this movie an exploration of intelligent art, or is it just a sleazy wolf in sheep's clothing? Now that is up to you. Let us see the vision through the eyes of Laura Mars.
In a world of breathtaking models and the beautiful people, Academy Award winner Faye Dunaway is photographer Laura Mars. Her work, the subject of controversy. Tommy Lee Jones is detective John Neville, intrigued by her photographs for his own reasons. Somewhere between the sensations of high fashion and the precise form of her art lies another dimension, unexplored, unexpected. Unwillingly, Laura Mars becomes a witness to a series of murders watching through the eyes of a killer. Her world, sensual, dazzling, provocative. His world, demanding, dangerous, violent. Pursued by visions, she is linked to a killer. At any place, at any time, a witness. At any moment, a victim of her own eyes. of Laura Mars. And I'm joined here by Daryl. How are you doing? I'm great, thanks, Johan. Yeah, really looking forward to this. Great to be back on the show. <laughs> yeah, it's been nice. It's good to have you on the show uh, for two reasons. One, the last one we did was for the other for the other podcast where we talked about Pink Flamingos, which honestly, it was one of my favourite episodes to record because... I was just, I'm, I'm blown away by your, by, by literally how much knowledge is stored in your head. And so <laughs> I, uh, I, I, it's the only episode where really I didn't have to do that much research. I could just let you just spew it out, which was wonderful. Yeah. Well, um, from, from my point of view, it's nice to have an outlet where I can pour all this stuff out and get it out of my head. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and it was, like I said, it was a lot of fun. I wanted to get you back on the show. When I wanted to get you back on the show, I was thinking of, I was thinking of films that would work well with both the fact that you're a film historian, but also a movie that kind of, well, blurs the lines in this case from being a trashy movie to something that's high art. And so in this case, I gave you Eyes of Laura Mars to watch, um, which is a movie I just discovered fairly recently. Um, I found this because there was a deal on Powerhouse Films. They do fantastic Blu-rays and they did something in their indicator uh, field where it just got the the D, the blu-ray out for only nine quid so i was like oh okay i'm curious about this one looking at the description and i was kind of blown away by it because i was not expecting this kind of movie out of what the advertisements gave it of as being this sort of this kind of sleazy movie when really it's a lot more than that yeah, yeah. I mean, let's let's put this in a bit of context to start with. There yes. was some. Um, uh, um, if if you go back to the the rise of the the sort of backwards um, exploitation slasher movie, which we 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 both love, you know, mm. the days of Friday the Thirteenth and Maniac and and My Bloody Valentine, all those great movies. There was a, there was a weird thing going on 
in American film at that time, whereby, um, and, and I suppose global film, where um, in that same period, late 70s, early 80s, um, you'd got, you'd got your, your sort of trashy um, slashers, which were aimed at a drive-in audience or a younger movie audience. Mm. But what do mum and dad do? What do your granny do? And um, Murder on the Orient Express had been a big hit in 1974 for Sidney mm. Lumet. A, a spate of uh, Agatha Christie adaptations started coming along in the late 70s, paralleling mm. the, 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 the the slasher movie. And they were like slasher movies for your granny sort of thing. You know, yeah. the, the Mirror Cracked and Death on the Nile. These were the body count movies that, that your, your, your sort of auntie and uncle would go to see. You know, <laughs> uh, you'd be their age sort of 16, 17, as, as I was watching Friday the 13th, you know, and, and your, your sort of elder relatives or people you knew that were older would be going to see Agatha Christie. Now, what was also happening in parallel with all this mm. is that um, uh, there was this certain strand of American cinema that sort of looked at the slasher movie and thought, well, you know, there's, they, they, these guys have got something. You know, mm. why why don't we elevate this, put major stars in it, and 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 do do this strand of films that we'll, we'll sort of sell as real proper films that might win awards and things, you know, and have big stars in them. So you get stuff like, um, I suppose, Dress to Kill is an interesting one, Brian yes. De Palma, because that, that's a film, De Palma was known to horror fans mm. because of things like Carrie and the Fury and Obsession and so on. So we knew and trusted De Palma, and it's, oh, Brian De Palma's made a new horror film. But Dress to Kill fits right into this other sort of band of movies it's got Angie Dickinson and Michael Caine in it. You know, it, it's got stars that your mum and dad have heard of. Yeah. They've not heard of anyone in the cast of The Burning, you know. And and um, uh, so, so yeah, Dress to Kill's a good example, but even better examples, even sort of further afield, things that, that might not necessarily appeal to horror fans. You've mm. got you've got stuff like The Fan with, with Lauren Bacall. You've, mm. got John, you've got John Houston, the director of some of the greatest Hollywood classics of all time, making a thing called Phobia with Paul Michael Glazer. Yeah. Um, you've got Still of the Night with um, Meryl Streep and Roy Scheider. Um, and you've got... Um, before all of these, perhaps the pioneer, perhaps the groundbreaker in all this, we've got Eyes of Laura Mars. We've got um, Faye Dunaway, who's, who's, who's just coming off the back of winning Best Actress at the Oscars yeah. for the network, you know. And, and she signs up to this thing, which to all intents and purposes is a, 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 a high-class slasher movie. It is. And, and so, yeah, it's part of this weird little trend that was going on of these big budget, major studio, big promotion movies that they sort of tried to pretend weren't horror films. But the great thing is, um, and I'm, I'm saying that these were films that your mum and dad might go and see. Mm. Um, the great thing is all of the slasher movie fans were going to see them anyway. So it kind of felt as if this was, this is sort of like the middle ground as it were saying, right, let's elevate what was sort of like these, these slasher movies. And in this case, I'd argue that this is sort of like a Hollywood's interpretation of the Jalo movie yeah, to go yeah. and say, all right, well, if we're going to do this. Let's get, some, let, let's get a big star in. Let's get, let, let, let's really focus on making it look like an actual Hollywood movie and not something that seems a little bit 
too seedy for, for yeah. the mainstream yeah. audience. Well, if you think about the Jalo, there was this major strand of Jalo. In fact, Jalo sort of emerged from that. The the, mm. the, 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 the key films in the late 60s, films like the Umberto Lenzi ones with uh, Carol Baker in the lead, they, they did a string of films together. Or Lucio Fulci's Perversion Story weren't, mm. really, weren't really horror movies. They were more sort of glossy thrillers. And they were often set in this rarefied world that me and you wouldn't be allowed into, you know, yeah. in sort of gated communities or people living in these big mansions and stuff. And some of the better Jali were were films like um, um, Black Belly of the Tarantula and things like um, uh, Death Walks on High Heels, and they were they were set in in these sort of glossy worlds of of sort of high fashion and high finance and and weird families who were sort of conspiring against each other, and it and it's that I think that passes on to this particular strand of American cinema. Mm. I think it's the high class giallo that. Um, uh, was was sort of taken on board by Hollywood at, at its highest echelons, and and so you were getting mm. people like Faye Dunaway, and as I say, Angie Dick, Angie Dickinson, Meryl Streep, people like that were appearing in these things. People that people that everybody had heard of. It's really wonderful because by this point, oh, it's it's almost feels like this is elevated trash, if I would say that way. It's elevated trash in a weird way because it's pointing, look, this if this was not done by big stars, this would have been directly into the bargain bin. No one would have seen it. People would have, um, people would have seen it as a cult hit. Yeah. But now that you've got Faye Dunaway and a very, very baby-faced Tommy Lee Jones, by the way, which yes, I was surprised yeah. when I saw this going, <laughs> ooh, you are very young. Yeah. Um, do, do you know what? Tom, Tommy Lee has got, if, if you think back to the way that Henry Winkler and John Travolta looked at at the time when when they weren't slicking their hair back to look yeah. like they were from from the 1950s but this the sort of modern late 70s henry winkler and john travolta tommy lee's got that sort of thing going on here you yeah know? Yeah, yeah, it's got that. It's got it's got this elevate again. This kind of classy look to the whole yeah. thing, and, and this is this is why we're not doing this on the trash tape. You know, it, it, there is that distinction here. I think there is that extra level to Eyes of Laura Mars. It could easily be a sort of camp classic. It could easily mm. fall into the, the 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 level of trash. And sometimes when I watch it, I watch it through those. I sort of watch it through. What would John Waters make of this sort of? Eye, yeah, you know? but. You can also watch it and just take it at absolute face value and think, mm. well, you know, the studio clearly thought this was a contender. You know, they they were making a prestige movie. Here. Yeah, because I, I on the on the Blu-ray I got there was a behind the scenes uh, documentary made at the time called Visions, and the way they were selling it, having the big actors and the big and the directors and the models talking about this as this is, which basically is a thesis of the movie, is the idea of high art versus trash. Yeah, yeah, and the whole idea that. Well, and most of the time, I say what we're doing is eleva- is basically showing it as the argument of what is art. These photographs are the unspoken stars of the film. The photographs deliver their message with provocative, even shocking images, all part of a new wave of sensual, sensational art. Either we get to the age-old question of is it art and is it not? I don't know, but I I saw some photographs that moved me. Well, I think stirred my spirit and my mind to an appreciation or an understanding of what the photograph was about that I would not have normally had, and maybe that's somehow related to what art is. I think of of what we do sometimes as being chic news, you know, presented beautifully, and which to me says it's positive. 
moving from the sensations of high fashion to the precise form of her art, the film reveals another dimension, unexplored, unexpected. And so it feels like, again, it's automatically putting you from a different perspective because you can watch it as a trashy slasher movie or watch it as an examination of what is art, which yeah, is yeah. not what I was expecting when watching this. Again, all the advertisements did a very weird thing here where they were promoting it as a sleazy movie. But then once you look into it more, it's clearly not. In fact, I'd argue that all the murders in this film are the least interesting parts other than some of the cool visual of it it's not the murders it's the it's the intrigue it's the drama it's the character development in between yeah it's, it's amazing it's, it's a film that's commenting on itself isn't it you know you're absolutely right johan and um it's it's so aware the production is so aware of itself and mm. um and yet manages not to go up its own arse, you know. It, it's, uh, um, uh, I mean, the idea that they they bring Helmut Newton in as 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 the photographer to 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 actually take all of the pictures mm. that we're we're shown on screen as as being the work of Laura Mars, i.e. Faye Dunaway, you know. Yeah. And and Helmut Newton, who's who's the the great sort of glossy um, uh, sort of fashion photographer of that era, who mm. was actually doing this sort of controversial stuff himself. So uh, um, and. And you've got things like the Roxy Music album covers as well, which are sort of Newton imitations, yeah. um, which are coming out from sort of 1972, 73 onwards. So they actually precede all this. And so Newton's been doing this stuff for a few years as well. And now the, the, the Laura Mars production is canny enough to say, let's get this guy on board and let's actually have him take our photos that we can then pass off as the work of Faye Dunaway. And, but, but those photos absolutely comment on what what the 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 debate about this film is you know one thing i did not realize is that this is a john carpenter film yes it is yeah carpenter was um a, one of those young guys who was struggling to get, make his way into Hollywood and make his way into the movie business from the early 70s. You know, he'd been mm. to film school, he'd made some successful uh, short films and things. He'd teamed up with some of the right people and he teamed up with Jack H. Harris, who, who had been the producer of The Blob back in the 50s. Yeah. And, and Harris had sort of taken Carpenter under his wing a little bit. Mm. And um, and they, they, they'd made, dark, he'd got Dark Star released, the Carpenter science fiction comedy. Mm. Uh, Carpenter had become a big hit with British critics when Assault on Precinct 13 came out. That, yes. was, that was a critical smash in Britain. And certainly in Britain and Europe, it was like, oh, there's this hot new director from the States. Watch, watch what he's going to do. 1978 is an interesting year for him because he'd written this script called Eyes yes. um, in the mid-70s, which, which is what develops into Eyes of Laura Mars. Mm. And he pitched that around Hollywood and Jack H. Harris tried to help him sell it. And it um, it fell into the hands of John Peters, mm. who, who listeners may have seen uh, the, the recent Oscar-nominated film Licorice Pizza, where yeah. uh, Bradley Cooper brilliantly plays the real-life John Peters, who was Barbara, <laughs> Stra Barbara Streisand's boyfriend. Yeah. And um, he was one of those great... This could only happen in the mid-'70s. He was one of those great celebrity hairdressers that, that you have. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and being a celebrity hairdresser, he wangled his way into Barbara Streisand's affections by, by teasing her lock, you know. And, um, and, and then 
because this is the 70s and because it's Hollywood, he decided, I'm going to become a movie producer. Magic. And he, he had several stabs at trying to make Superman over the years, and that's yeah. a whole that's, mad story if you've ever seen, If you've ever heard Kevin Smith talk about the story he has with John Peters, Indeed. is astronomically hilarious. He's like, I got some directives for you if you're going to move forward on the process. Some things I want you to do and don't in the script. He's going, three things. Okay, I said, all right. One, I don't want to see him in that suit. Two, I don't want to see him fly. And three, he's got to fight a giant spider in the third act. And I'm like, let's, let's go back to one. When you say you don't want him in the suit, and he's like, don't want to see him in it. Don't want it. looks too faggy, he goes. So uh, he said, flying, flying, I don't want to see him fly. I said, well, that's, I mean, that's kind of the suit and flying defines Superman. So don't want to see it, don't want to see him fly. No scenes where he's flying around carrying people, horseshit. <laughs> said, all right, all right, no flying. I said, but the giant spider intrigues me. <laughs> why, uh, why that? And he's like, do you know anything about spiders? And I said, I mean, no. And he said, well, they're the fiercest killers in the insect kingdom. <laughs> so I went back to Warner Brothers and sat down with them, and they said, he, uh, we heard from him, he likes you, uh, we're going to hire you, you're going to move forward. Did he bring up the spider? <laughs> I said, he did, he brought up the spider, he tell you guys about the spider? Like, every day with the fucking spider. <laughs> He's, he's quite a delusional producer. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, he has yeah. certain things. And also, I'm not sure if it's nepotism, but it does make sense now why Barbara Streisand's in the soundtrack for this yeah. movie. Well, she she was actually mooted as the star initially. Really? Carpenter's script. And, yeah, Car- Carpenter, Carpenter is nobody at this point. He's yes. just another struggling writer in Hollywood. And um, his script, his treatment comes to John Peters mm-hmm. and Peters reads it and thinks, this would be fantastic for Barbara. <laughs> and Barbara reads it and says, John, what, what are you talking about? This is not for me. No you fucking way. <laughs> you know, and uh, this is so weird. I'm not doing this. But he, 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 he then touts it around Hollywood. And being John Peters, very, very influential at the time, mm-hmm. amazingly, you know, this is, you know, risen from being a sort of celebrity hairdresser to suddenly being one of the most powerful guys in Hollywood. And, so he can he if Barbara Streisand turns him down, mm-hmm. what does he do? He thinks, well, what I'll do is pitch this instead. If Babs doesn't want to do it, I'm going to pitch this to the lady who won Best Actress at the Oscars last and year. We keep it. coming back to it, and she says, "I'd love to do this. This looks really interesting." Well, you get that great pre-credit scene, which is wordless, where we sort of see um, a sort of negative of Laura's own eyes and yeah. Barbara Streisand doing that amazing power ballad on on, on the titles. You yeah. then go into um, the, the the sort of first vision that she did, the first indication that oh, this this is a character who's having these weird visions. But then after the credits, we we go into this thing where she's actually launching her new book and she's at this sort of um, uh, prestige sort of launch for the the, the her, all of her new photographs coming oh, yeah. out. And the the debates among the audience are terrific. Ta-da! 
You are perfect. <laughs> How is it in there? Too early to tell. Uh-uh. We are about to be clotheslined. By whom? Sheila Wiseman. Uh, this morning, Sheila Wiseman, we've met over President no, I remember you. How are you doing? Yeah, Sheila, we agreed that pictures and interviews would be done inside the gallery. Well, I just want to ask her if she knows how really offensive her work is to women. Oh, Cute. So, does anyone have anything positive to ask? Oh, do you consider yourself a serious artist? I'm very serious about my work. Well, serious by what standard? By my own standard. Well, isn't that kind Can of an elitist position? Question? Honestly, I think I'd better take a fifth. If you can do better than that, Miss Mars, really. No, no, wait, 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 Fellas, come on, give us a break here, huh? The best, the best exchange at that, um, at that soiree is you, you sort of, you, I don't think you even see who says this, but you just sort of overhear this dialogue in the background, a conversation where someone says, Whatever happened to beautiful? Well, it certainly isn't here. <laughs> I love that. It's yeah, one, yeah. one of my favorite exchanges in here, which is basically the full-blown thesis almost of at least the first half of the film, at least, is is when you got one of the models uh, who literally is talking to camera and saying, like, we live in a violent world, everything's violent, so why not just show it up there and why not have all this violence, not only shown up there, but to help you advertise for perfume? So what I think Laura is saying with the work is like, okay, America, okay, world, you are violent. You are pushing all this murder on us. So here it comes, right back at you. And we'll use murder to sell deodorant so that you'll just get bored with murder, right? That is a whole stance on it. If you are, the news is already showing you all this murder, which is a reflection on things like the Vietnam War and the news cycle at the time. So we're saying, well, if it's all if, if it's all out on the news, why can't we have it in our advertising then? It's already out there in the media. Sure, sure. So why not just put it on the side of a bus? Which is fascinating when you actually see shots of like of of basically like these two women scantily clad holding a cigarette on a bike on a motorcycle, saying buy our perfume pretty much <laughs> this sort of thing goes back to the um the the, the famous or infamous uh, beatles album cover in the 60s that, that that was was scheduled to be released in the states where they're all sort of covered in meat and holding up uh, sort of uh dolls representing dead babies and things you know and mm. and this this was sort of mid 60s when the beatles are doing that and of course they they were sort of castigated for it and you oh, you can't do this and here's laura mars sort of pitching the same sort of idea of yeah let's let's put this 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 meat at the heart of of, of what we're doing do you think that art can be trashy or is it or is there two different con- uh, like broken down that way can art be trashy mm. or can trashy be art I love the whole great miasma of it. I, I love the whole mix. It's uh, the the answer to all of those questions is yes. <laughs> yes, they can. And both I'm, be I'm that. leaving it at that. No, I love that, and I think the whole movie is the whole thing is they're both the same. They are they're just they're just people's interpretations of art. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, because, you know, there's always the argument with art where, you know, when someone goes yeah, to a yeah. modern art museum, someone goes to the Tate Modern and looks at, for example, there is just a brick in the middle of a room and someone calls it art. People will go like, I get it. It's art. It is art. Yeah, and you can yeah. argue that is still a piece of art, despite the fact you have you do not understand what it means. Yeah. Even even the murders in Eyes of Laura Mars are art. Yes. The, the, kill, the killer is an artist, which, again, is a great shallow uh, conceit. You know, the, the, the 
killings in giallo films are always staged in spectacular fashion. And people have even said, you know, a, a, a later giallo film, Dario Argento's Tenebrae from, from the I love Tenebrae. The form, you know, there's a great scene where, where, where um, someone is killed in their apartment and, and their arm is sliced off and blood sprays up against the wall. It's beautiful. But various critics, various critics have pointed out, you know, the, the, the spray of blood up against that white wall in the apartment is like a piece of modern art. Mm. And, and um, you get that sense in Eyes of Laura Mars because the, the central image of, of the actual murders themselves is somebody stabbing an ice pick into somebody's left eye. And that happens over and over and over again, even to the point where the book cover, the, the, in the, the left Laura eye. Mars book cover with her eyes on it, gets an ice pick in, in, in the left eye at one point. And, and the image... You you could frame you you could literally frame that two 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 eyes one of them the left one with with a, a, a weapon and the handle of a weapon sticking out of it with 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 and, and especially when when the book cover is is uh, or the or the picture of the book cover mm. is stamped um, you've even got shattered glass around it all you know the the image is sensational and again. It's, that's that's taken right out of what the Italians were doing. I'm going to go to the ending without spoiling it, but there's a wonderful scene where the confrontation happens and then the killer, st- staring into their own reflection in the mirror, stabs it again in the left eye situation. Stabbing, even The killer even stabs himself in the eye. Yeah, yeah. And it's wonderful. It's wonderful, wonderful symmetry that leads up to... What to, to to the big confrontation near the end? Yeah. Which and, and what does what does that tell you about the killer's psyche as well? You know, they 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 see themselves as a victim. Yeah, and it's really bizarre because they they, they have the, they, there's a wonderful conversation where they sort of like in sort of a silly sort of Machiavellian supervillain way, literally spews the entire thing out, <laughs> and it's wonderful and hammy and now, beautiful. I, I, and I'd suggest that that's possibly David Zeller Goodman rather than Carpenter because Carpenter. Carpenter would have seen Psycho and thought, I love this film up until the bit where they they sort of regurgitate the entire plot in the last five minutes, you know. So I imagine that Carpenter would have left that a little more sort of up in the air and that Hollywood has come on and said, no, we we need to explain the psychology of this. Yeah, almost in a way of saying, like, there's enough enough breadcrumbs here. It's like, we've got breadcrumbs, but almost almost like a very Hollywood way of saying, like, audiences can be quite dumb. So let's put, let's do a moment there. Although, it's yeah, funny we need, because the, we, need, we need the whole loaf yeah but yeah. again to add the sort of trashy almost comical point of it the killer goes literally at one point rams through a glass window almost in a hilariously comical fashion that comes out of left field always the visuals are centered around violence and again it, it keeps coming back to this theme of can violent things and can things being broken and smashed and can can people being broken and smashed can can that be art can that be visually interesting can that be appealing and the answer is yes 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 and the film keeps telling you that yep. you know and and those those people that are sniping at the at the book launch at the start are are wrong you know i mm. I, I think all you, you you only hear negative comments about this in that opening scene yeah and the rest of the time we're, we as the audience are encouraged to to revel in this and say, yeah, this this is great. We we like what we're seeing here. We like this mixture of, of violence and the artistic. 
we we love the fact that these models are sort of posing in these these poses where they're they're sort of having fights or they've got blood all over themselves mm. and uh, um, no it's 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 I th- I think the film comes down very much on the side of its own argument which is yeah this 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 stuff can work you know violence can be art and then the whole other question as you've mentioned is should we use this to sell baked beans well, that, that's a whole other thing <laughs> that's know. a whole other argument. Yeah. The, with the photo shoot in the um, in on the New York street, which is this over elaborate car crash scene oh, where people are getting beaten up, sawn all over, fire. It's 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 genuinely beautiful to look at, even yeah. though the act itself is downright scary. Yeah, and again, it's it, it's it, it, the film pitches itself between those two. You know, it, it's and, and it sort of forces you to say, look. What this image? This image has got terrifying things in it. It's got fire and it's got girls clawing at each other, pulling their hair out, and and cat fighting on the streets. And there's there's a crowd sort of gathered around watching it as well, which is fascinating. You know, I, mm. I love that aspect of it. But the images we're seeing are, are gorgeous. They're the really pretty. Plate, the the burning cars look fantastic. Manhattan in the background looks amazing. And even the photographer looks fabulous. You know, Laura herself is is a, a, a fashion plate. You know, she she's wearing the, the the latest high fashions and looking fabulous. And and um, uh, yeah, and, and and yet the art that she produces, and and again, even I, I call it art there, but there's there's even a a, a, um, a, a bit of a dichotomy there because yeah. you know, she's she's producing art, but as you've already mentioned. It's commercial too. It's it's yeah. being used to sell stuff, and she's even selling her own photos. You know, never mm. never mind using it to sell products. The photo is the product. Is she using exploitation to her advantage here to make high art, or is she saying it's high art, but actually everyone's everyone's starting to see it's more exploitation? It's an now, interesting argument. Yeah, there's an absolutely fascinating bit in the script, and it's it's all it's almost not sort of dug into. They almost sort of gloss over this a little bit. Mm. But there's there's actually a point where there's a there's a very little minor suggestion that Tommy Lee Jones might regard Laura as he's he's the investigating cop, of course, mm. and he might regard Laura as an actual suspect. Yes, he, he says, look, you know, your photos are actually mirroring. The, um, the 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 killings exactly and and they are because because the the you know the the, the plot of the film the gist of the film is that Laura is not only a photographer but she's she's having these visions she has visions of the murders before they happen but then goes out and photographs those visions and restages them as tableau so the obvious thing that the police think is are are you actually doing this. These are classified police photographs of unsolved murders. Right. They've never been published anywhere at all. Now, what I would like you to do is compare your photograph to ours. So, my question is very simple. Why are my photographs so much like yours? That's right. When were these photographs taken? About two years ago. This one about 14 months. You think I was in those actual situations, committed the murders, and then recreated them in photographs? 
I don't buy it. Let's look at let's look at Laura Mars and let's look at Detective Neville because yeah. their interactions are fascinating. Because watching it the first time round, the dynamic is one way. Watching it the second time round, not to throw any spoilers in there, but the dynamic of the whole movie suddenly changes to for me. Oh yeah, uh, it's it's one of those films where when you watch it the second time and you know how it all comes out. It's it's complete. It's a completely different film. It is because um, I, I, I'm not. The thing is, I'm now. I'm, I'm a little bit of a quandary here because I want people to watch this movie. I'm not sure whether to spoil it because I don't want I, to. I, I love. I think. I think we should avoid spoilers if we can. But it's. Yeah. But by doing that, we will tell any listeners that we're we're actually. Um, in, in not spoiling the film, we're, we're taking away a whole level of, of, of really fascinating conversation, I think. There's so yeah. much we could say about this film that yeah. not, give, not being able to give spoilers, I think, just, just takes away a, 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 an awful lot here. But one, yeah. one thing to say about the, the relationship between um, the detective and Laura is that um, uh, I gather that that got... Irving Kirshner, the job of directing The Empire Strikes Back. You think so? George George Lucas saw Eyes of Laura Mars and he loved the film and he loved what Kirshner did with it. And I gather that he particularly loved the romance. Mm. And he contacted Kirshner and said, you're, you're the guy to do what I want to do with The Empire Strikes Back. Fascinating. I would. So, so, so you've got the George Lucas seal of approval on <laughs> on this relationship and on these characters. So, any anything we say about them in the next few minutes, you know, um, George Lucas agrees with. So, yeah. uh, look through that. Now, if you think of that camera as the eyes of the killer, what you're seeing through that lens is what the killer sees. It, it's on the monitor there. When it happens to me, I can't see what's in front of me. What I see is that. Do you understand? Yeah. Yeah. Let me try that. It's like a lot of fun. What? Is that how I look? <laughs> I look like that. Well, I think that's how you look. Well, I look like a damn cop is what I look like. Uh... You know, I find all of this uh, very interesting. And... I'm going to double the security around you. I'd advise you to stay indoors as much as possible. Talking about the romance there, it's interesting how it develops because it's the idea of having Tommy Lee Jones, who is the detective of time, already starting off with a bad note and slowly whether the idea of legitimately falling for Laura Mars or the idea that it's a sort of like this power dynamic slowly starts to shift. That's, that's being done in a, in a sort of coy 
um, uh, oh, you know, I, 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 I like, I like the look of Laura. You know, let's let's pretend I don't know who she is, and and uh, use that as the first step to getting to know her. You know, in a sort of romantic sense. And here, it's down to business. He's sort of doing the same thing, but he's doing it as part of his day job. And suddenly, it's got this more sort of sinister turn to it. You know, as for someone who's doing their day job he's kind of infatuated a little bit with her by saying like, there's a scene, for example, where he says, Oh, by the way, any day or night, here's my card. Uh, I and there's a, there's a line where it's like, do I need to hire a bodyguard? And he just goes, you already have one. It's almost like instigating a do not worry. I'm here for you. I am the detective on the case. Come to me. And this is what happens. Cause then he becomes sort of the instigating incident of all the possible suspects in this scene. Um, because obviously this, the thing is it's not necessarily all the murders that are happening. Aren't random. They're all connected to her own inner circle. And so she's feeling traumatized by this because obviously it's like, it's just a business acquaintance. Then it's a close friend. Then it's the models. And Mm. so by that point, you're going, oh no, this is literally people who, so it has to be someone who knows me. Yeah, yeah. The, The inference there, of course, is that whoever the killer is, is also creeping steadily closer towards Laura herself. There is a fantastic scene, which I love, which this is a scene where for me, this is fully out of a over-the-top Jallo movie, is when she is in the, um, is when is when she's in her studio alone, and then suddenly she gets the vision, uh, she gets the vision, which I love how the vision's done, very simply. It's just a close-up of her eyes, close-up, and then this blurred image of the yeah, shot. Yeah, the, the old, old vas- Vaseline on the lens, <laughs> lots of gels and stuff. Yeah, and it, But it's it's great. It, you know, it works. Why not use it? You and know? then, yeah, and then from that bit, seeing like, oh, no, this whatever this vision can see me. And then she she goes, she runs out of the place in which, again, another another slight of whether high high class or high art or trash, her studio's in an abandoned warehouse, basically, this abandoned seaside warehouse, which is derelict. And so you see the shot where she leaves the studio and, terrified, runs down this large, huge, empty, derelict warehouse, screaming bloody murder, asking for asking for anyone to help go. And it's 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 a genuinely beautiful, terrifying shot of her running manic. It's a shot that you could have taken out of any Italian Giallo movie for Absolutely. any, any yeah, you can, you concept. Can, you can imagine, you can imagine Rosalba Neri or Edwidge Finesh or somebody like that uh, in in phase position, you know. And and it is a very very Italian eight shot. Yeah, yeah. But that's the thing. It's like the thing that makes it more interesting. It's done by Faye Dunaway, yeah, <laughs> who yeah, is the yeah. one of the biggest stars at the time, yeah. pulling well, off as, as, this as, shot. As we, as we say, you know. Um, I, I think at the time of the shoot, she she was the the, the reigning best actress from from the previous year's Academy Awards. You know, her performance is fascinating because it's a bit of combination. It is. It's slightly in the sense that it does elevate at points, which I find absolute for me as a band movie fan. I kind of love when something just goes a little over the top. Yeah. yeah.
another oh another person we have to forget a very young baby face Raul Julia is in this oh yes yeah well although Raul apparently had had some problems with with the production and took his name off it if you look in the credits mm. he's credited as RJ is wow I, I, yes it is I didn't realize that obviously because I know who Raul Julia is like I say oh I know yeah, who it is yeah, course, so is a I don't know what what happened there actually that's a, that's an intriguing situation. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure of the full details, but I, I know that he was very sort of disenchanted with, with the, the film and the whole production and decided, you know, I'm, I'm, I mean, he's, at this point, Raoul is, is, is um, known as, a, as being a big, big theatre star since mm. going back to the mid-60s, you know, and he's, he's, he's started getting into movies more recently and, um, and here's a big prestige one for him working alongside Faye Dunaway and... He, rather than just accept that and go with the flow, he says, no, there's something I don't like here. I'm taking my name off the credits. There's something interesting with that because uh, Raul Julia plays uh, Laura's ex-husband. And again, another sort of another sort of red herring MacGuffin suspect character that kind of appears. And it's interesting because... His character is fascinating. He is, um, he's almost like the full uh, let loose sort of broken down version of what Laura would be. Laura focuses entirely on her work and she get, and she revels in that and she enjoys that. Uh, while Raul Julie, who's an author, uh, just can't, can't do that. So she, he always goes to the bottle. He is kind of a sex pest. He is... He's, he's, he's unhinged. And yeah, yeah. I, I, I also think that in his look and in his demeanour and, and in his sort of gruffness and, and in, in the sort of the, the, the deep voice that he uses, he's, 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 he's sort of a mirror of the Tommy Lee Jones character in a way as well. So yeah. there's, bits, there's bits of the detective and bits of Laura in, in this figure. Yeah, it's kind of like the middle ground almost. Yeah, yeah. Don't look at me like that. I did not kill Elaine. What reason would I have to kill her? She was the best meal ticket I ever had. Second best. I was the best. Why, Elaine? Do you have to destroy everything you, you touch? This whole thing is pointing towards me, and I did not do it. Everything I have is in Elaine's apartment. I have no money, no clothes. The police are after me, and now you provoke me. You deliberately provoke me. You may have all these other people fooled, but I know what a killer you can be at three o'clock in the morning. Oh, no. A killer at three o'clock in the morning? Where were you? Where? When I needed something, when I needed some comfort, where were you? In your dark room. Where else could I find any peace? You were in that bedroom You tore me apart. You made it impossible for me to write. That's not true! Michael, you've been drunk for the last six years! Oh, but you, instant star of the world of sheep. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
And this is what happens because then he becomes sort of the instigating incident of all the possible suspects in this scene with involving ex-husband donald who is or donald's sort of like his sort of like her producer kind of vibe who is again not not entirely being honest or or at least being a bit more candid the idea that look your visions are now getting the way of work you need yeah, to yeah, yeah. almost om- played played by played by the great uh, rene aubergenois who oh. uh, is is just fabulous in this I, I i think he's the best thing in the film I, I've, I've loved him for years going back to when he was in robert Holt and films in the early 70s and he played uh, he played the governor in the uh, tv sitcom uh, benson as well and uh, uh, yeah um, and, uh, but I, I i think he's absolutely terrific here um, he he really fits into the sort of camp sensibility of this film i think mm. and, and he, he sort of leans it towards um he's, he's great because he's a very sophisticated character mm. and so even though he's someone who could fit into this film if it were a trash movie mm. Um, Rene almost um, sort of drags this back into the, the the world of sophistication and the world of high art. You know, he's he's he's, he's a really really great character. He he wouldn't be seen dead in a John Waters film. You know, this no. guy. But um, but but we as the audience would sort of like to see him in one. But uh, <laughs> yeah, he's he's very definitely part of the um, the sophisticated set and he ain't budging from there. And um, he's, his relationship with Laura is really interesting. And, mm. and there's this three-way thing going on because, of course, you've got Brad Dorif as, as Tommy, their, yes. their driver, who seems to have a sort of dodgy, um, maybe druggy sort of past or mm. maybe sort of petty criminal sort of past but he's dragged himself up by the bootstraps and he's now got his chauffeur's cap on. He's driving these big stars around. Um, but um, Rene and and, um, and Brad don't get on. You know, the characters, Tommy and Donald, don't get on and they hate each other. And Laura's in the middle of this. She loves them both. She's friendly with both. And um, But but there is, there is this thing sort of stretching there. There is this sort of pull that, that um, uh, you know, this, this triangle isn't stable and this triangle not being stable adds more to it because there's a whole section basically when they go to the police station the first time which is sort of like basically after the second murder um almost as a weird way of almost saying like i'm putting this under the bus almost kind of thing like like trying to keep it quiet uh tommy says look i need to confess something which basically the idea let me confess something i did time i did go to prison for burglary and uh and assault with a deadly weapon and so on and so forth Almost to confess, say, look, I'm being honest with you here because I do have a shady past, but I did not have anything to do with the previous murders. Uh, Miss Mars, I don't know. Uh, the, the cops told Let's me talk about this some I, other time. Miss Mars has things on her And mind. Mr. Phelps here has uh, a few things that he'd like to tell you about me, but I'd rather tell you them myself. Laura, I don't think this is an appropriate time. I'm trying very hard to keep my cards on the table and my self on the street. Bad timing. I did a bit. And uh, I've been in prison. What did you do, Tommy? I was in for uh, armed robbery and assault with a deadly weapon. (laughs) And I've also had some prior arrests. Jesus, spare us the soap opera. You knew that, Mr. Phelps, when you hired me for Miss Mars. What can you tell him? You did? You knew that? 
Why do you find that so amazing? Laurie, you can't just talk about rehabilitation. I happen to believe in giving people a chance. You believe in spit is what you believe in, and I'm not putting up with nobody hanging up with crap. Just five minutes ago, you sat in this car and tried to railroad me. Are you going to let this Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I don't want to hear any more. Laura, I'm sorry. Laura, I'm sorry. That's it. Both of you, leave me alone. And it, the, the, by that point, the, the history and the relationship gets really tattered to the point where when it is Donald's sort of birthday party celebration, well, Laura kind of wants Tommy to be there. Uh, mm. Donald doesn't because already suspects like, no, you are trash compared to me. I am the sophisticated one. You are the gutter rat, pretty yeah, much. He, he even leaves him very symbolically standing outside the door. You know, he's actually right outside the door of the apartment. Mm. And then he, he throws away this line saying, oh, we'll, 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 we'll send you out a piece of cake, you know. And it's like totally dismissive. Yeah, which adds yeah, more you, to... You are, you are nothing. Which adds more to the whole dynamic of yeah. High, yeah. the high society versus low society. High Absolutely. brow versus low brow. Yeah. Is it, this it, art or is the, this trash? Symbol, symbolized with a door in between it and and with with a literal let them eat cake thing going on as well you know <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Tommy, uh, would you come back in um, an hour from yeah. it's just hard you know to figure out what you're gonna do with yourself in just an hour could you work it out yeah Tommy <laughs> we'll save you a piece of cake you're a piece of cake What, what's going on with the the, the scene where Donald's actually dressed as Faye Dunaway? He's dressed as Laura. I love that scene. Point. He's 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 got secrets in the closet there, you know. And, and his his party's amazing as well because that's that's there's there's you know there's a penis in it. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. That's um uh, you know all, all the guests appear to be male, you know, and and. Uh, <laughs> There's there's the, there's a whole lot about Donald that we never quite find out. You know? There's enough scenes there to suspect that basically his homosexuality is okay and open to everybody, which I find yeah, quite yeah. fascinating. Yeah, but it's it's sort it's sort of closeted to us though, that, and which is interesting. You it's know, only it, out it's, until uh, the end part where it says this yeah, is a yeah, thing. Yeah, but yeah. I love I love because everyone sort of mocks. At the beginning, when they first have the, I think he has a, a discussion with the copper. Sort of like these, sort of like these camp uh, impressions, and say, "Oh, I could do a very good Lloyd Bridges," um, yeah, which he which he does brilliantly just by screwing up his face. It's, and it's brilliant. Perfect. It's brilliant. I'm on his side all the way through. You know, yeah. how, however bitchy he might get, <laughs> whoever's clothes he might want to wear, whatever he might want to do at his party, I'm I'm right there with the guy. You with know? with that scene, would make me laugh. Is the idea of he, he's sick and tired of being called names, basically like closet case kind of vibe and whatever but when he's in the dress and gets called it i just love the thing it's it's the only part that really makes me laugh it's like so what did you call me you, you, you call me and start literally slapping the copper with his purse <laughs> <laughs> it's just like you lit this is literally a farce now this moment here is a comedy farce yeah, yeah. well that's that's the moment where as, as i say you know he, he 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 may well be sort of known within his circles and within the community at large mm. as as being out but but it's interesting that the film does sort of closet him from us, the audience. You know, there is that barrier mm. between us and him. And I think that's the point where he comes out to us. Yeah, it's like, it's official. But it, look, if you yeah, haven't suspected yeah, yeah. by the party by this point, this is the final nail on it. 
it seems like that, relate character relationships like that, that really, really strengthen this film because aren't, aren't the red herrings in this film mm. fantastic? You know, there's 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 five or six characters that even in even considering that this is a very close-knit community and that Laura's only experiencing visions about people that she knows and the killer is is targeting people that she knows. Mm. Um, so there can't there can't be many suspects, but we actually end up with about half a dozen very, very convincing red herrings here. And I think that's the result of this in the precisely of this sort of interplaying and the character relationships and the actors' performances. And I think that's never better than in this relationship between the Rene and um and the Brad Dorif characters. It's perfect. And this is the thing, like again, the writing here is so good. It's so well written, but also still has elements of a campy, trashy movie into and, it. Um David Zelag Goodman, who is a sort of known quantity in Hollywood mm. and especially known as being what we what nowadays we call a script doctor. Yes. You know, I don't I don't know if that term was being used back then, but he's someone that Hollywood recognised as right. We've got this terrible script, <laughs> but it's got a few great ideas in it. Let's send it to David Zelag Goodman and see what he can do with it. And his expertise was in taking the script, looking through it, and saying this is fantastic. But on page thirteen, that character. Is is talking to someone in a way as though he knows them, and and we it's already been 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 shown that he doesn't know them, or he'd, he'd find little mistakes in there, he'd find yeah. little things that didn't quite fit, and he'd correct them. And I I, I guess that he was brought on to do that with with eyes of Laura Mars. And I don't I don't quite know how much of John Carpenter remains in this. And how much of it is Goodman? There are things that I can imagine Carpenter having written. I'm sure the whole vision thing and the whole sort of, the whole body count thing is his. But um, and 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 interestingly, you you might think that the high the high fashion stuff may have been layered on by by Hollywood afterwards. But in 1978 as well, as well as making Halloween and as well as seeing this come into production, mm. Carpenter made a thing for TV called Someone's Watching Me with Lauren Hutton, and she's playing a very high-class, very high-fashion character. And again, it's Lady in Peril stuff. She's living in this high-rise apartment, a place you'd want to live, you know, just the, the ultimate apartment, and yet is being stalked by a killer in the building. One week from tonight, she's young, beautiful, successful, and has everything to live for, but someone wants her dead. Hello? Lauren Hutton, David Burney, and Adrian Barbeau star in a chilling tale of suspense and terror. A twisted maniac is at large. Can he be stopped before it's too late? Someone's watching me next Wednesday on NBC. You might look at Eyes of Laura Mars and say, well, maybe Carpenter would have been a bit more blue-collar and a bit more down-to-earth mm. and wouldn't have gone into this world of high fashion. I think someone's watching me shows that he was right there. And so so I, I think knowing what I know about David Zelag Goodman being someone who would come on board and doctor script, mm. I, I would speculate that what we're seeing is, is a lot of John Carpenter, a lot more than you might think. It's almost fascinating to think like there is an alternative universe somewhere where 
he actually makes eyes of eyes the way he intended to rather than assault on precinct 13 i think that would have come out very much like the tv movie someone's watching me so if you want to see what john carpenter's eyes might have looked like yeah. Uh, check out the film with Lauren Hutton, which he shot just before Halloween. It's, it's weird. People tend to think of Carpenter as being, oh, yeah, he's this blue-collar guy. He went to film school. He dragged himself up by the bootstraps. He made Dark Star. He made Assault on Precinct 13. He made Halloween. And then he went to Hollywood. No, no. The truth is that there's all this stuff in between. Think about it. In between Halloween and The Fog, the guy made Elvis the movie, for Christ. Yes, sake, you know? he did, and didn't he? Tonight a special presentation of the ABC Sunday Night Movie. To millions, he was the king, Elvis Aaron Presley. Hey, kid, this is Sam Phillips. Listen, you want to come make some blues? The greatest entertainer of the 20th century. Tonight, meet the man who became the legend. I think you ought to seriously reconsider going back to driving a truck again. The man whose music electrified two generations of America. Tonight, the myth becomes the man. The legend comes to life. The king lives again. Elvis. Carpenter had this whole parallel career going on that people often, often ignore. I mean, Hall- Halloween is the, the great sort of blue-collar slasher movie, you know, but mm. but, um, but he made Someone's Watching Me, which is this really great sort of high-concept, high-fashion thing with, with, with Lauren Hutton in it before he made Halloween. And they look as though they'd have been made after. And Carpenter himself mm. has said, oh, yeah, I learned so much on the set of Someone's Watching Me that I then bought to Halloween, you know. So if you watch, I I, I, th- I think a great triple bill for, for Carpenter fans that mm. would be a real eye-opener, no pun intended, is, is, is to watch Eyes of Laura Mars, then watch Someone's Watching Me, and then watch Halloween. I think you'd see Halloween in a completely different light. You'd see this sort of literal like growth of a filmmaker yeah, onwards yeah, upwards yeah. But interestingly sort of coming coming down in in terms of clash you know in in a sense yeah because it was happening afterwards is like john carpenter's career is genuinely one of the most fascinating things because all the movies that we love were all the movies that we love now in retrospect are the ones which financially flopped because they were very they were cultish they were designed to be they were almost designed to be a little bit they were blue collared but the movies that he learned a lot on were the ones which seemed to be what hollywood wanted him to try out and do um i remember elvis the movie that was a i completely forgot about that but i remember it now and going like yeah this is he's he's not especially at that age at at, at the age in the 70s he's young he's fresh he wants to just work he wants to put his stuff out there and try things out it's a learning experience for him and i feel like maybe perhaps maybe he always maybe he did want to make eyes the way he wanted to do it but realizing learning it the hard way going look hollywood might not want it like this yeah yeah the 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 thing the thing with carpenter being involved here is hollywood would john peters would not have had a clue what a jalo was yes but john carpenter was going to watch them all Mm. he'd 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 be seeing this stuff you know three times a month he'd he'd be going to watch italian movies yeah he'd know exactly what a jalo was and he brings that sensibility to this Mm. in and 
But you can imagine a Peters or or the the studio looking at this and thinking, well, we we like we we don't know where this stuff's coming from, but it's we got like a it. gloss that we can identify with. So I usually like ending this with an elevator pitch. So if we were going to pitch this to someone who has never seen the movie before in a couple of sentences, how would we do it? I I think there's um, the scope for a prequel to Eyes of Laura Mars, you know, because mm. um, uh, I think there's, there's the hint that she's taken up photography because she's getting these visions. Mm. And I'd sort of like to see... A, a, a prequel to the film where we find out how, how Laura first experiences the visions and how she then develops that in, into art. But for the, for the movie itself, I, I, I think, um, I, I'm not sure. I, I, I think they did a job of selling this in 1978 anyway. I, th- yeah. I think they, they did it just right. I, I think you could really pitch this to a modern audience, though, to an audience that knows what Jalo is and an audience that accepts that big-budget, major studio Hollywood is capable of making stuff that is body count, that is knife murder, that is slasher-esque, but, but in, in high fashions, you know. Um, I think you'd, 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 you'd put the name of John Carpenter high in yes. the advertising and... I think you'd 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 maybe not use Faye Dunaway's name so much because I think she's sort of been a bit forgotten now over the years. Yeah, know? that's something I wanted to notice about actually. It's interesting just to make a just a final note on it. Looking at Faye Dunaway's career, it's fascinating her career. She has a decade where she's literally the biggest star on the planet, the, and, the queen of Hollywood. Yeah, and yeah. then she does Mummy Dearest, which I personally <laughs> I adore, but that because that is. That uh, it, yeah, it's but that's, that's a trash tapes one though. A hundred percent. This is why we can do Eyes of Laura Mars on the not so trash tapes because Mommy Dearest is out there. Mommy Dearest exists, and Faye went there. You yeah. know, but uh, yeah, it's yeah. arguably like one of the last big roles for her that was that that had some kind of like I think praise to it because after that she went and did. Mummy Dearest, she did Supergirl, um, she did, and and then she did loads of bit parts in other films, which kind of basically means she's kind of fa- literally just dis- like kind of gone into obscurity in a weird way, yeah, and and ended up in even doing sort of low budget movies, and and um, uh, you know it's it's um, um it it is it's ho- typical Hollywood career trajectory, really, you know, mm. and uh, um, so yeah, I I think if you were pitching Eyes of Laura Mars to a modern audience, you'd really play up the John Carpenter thing because people who would want to see this film would love to to hear that John Carpenter was involved with it. Yes, Tommy Lee Jones, I think, is is still a big name to this day, mm. and 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 you could emphasise him as as being part of it, and I think you'd sell this on. The the, uh, the 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 you you really point up the fact that it it is a body count film that it's a murder story, and and that it's got this psychic angle to it. I I think that's that's something that wasn't necessarily made uh, more of a focus in either the advertising or in the film itself. I I I, I, I don't think they really make as much of, of the psychic angle as they could. And that's why I'd love to see a prequel to this, where we see Laura developing her ability Amanda. and turning it into art and turning it into a career. Yeah, because because you mentioned in the interview at the beginning is like, uh, suddenly about two years ago, I was getting visions after yeah, what yeah. seems so, to be like so a traumatic let's, event. So let's, 
let's see those two years. I'd love to see what happened in that time. And I'd love to see, um, uh, uh, it, you know, if, if if they made it now, you know, you, you'd have the 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 the, the great um, possibility of casting a young actress as a sort of Faye Dunaway type. So who in who in Hollywood now can 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 do that Faye Dunaway thing? And let's see Laura Mars. The, the 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 junior years, you know, let's see how she develops this ability and how she how she turns it into art to the point where Tommy Lee Jones can actually accuse her of being a murderer. Oh my which goodness! He in, which he does in this film. You could even end with that. You know, you could even end with with the scene where you could end Laura with that recreation is, of the first scene yeah, where yeah. they meet, and, and and then the police burst in and say, "You did it," you know, and and she's trying to protest her innocence. I love so, that. So yeah, I, I I think there's real scope there to a sell this movie to a modern audience. Mm. I, I I think a modern audience would understand this, and especially a sort of a post Jallo audience, and and the people of the sort of discovered Jallo films in the past 15 years or so mm. of which there are a lot i th- i think eyes of laura mars might be a film that they don't know and i think they'd love it before we finish johan I, I just want to mention a couple of things that are tangentially related to eyes of laura mars um listeners really really need to seek this out online mad magazine did a parody of it in 1979 called the eyes of laurid mess Okay, um, and it's fantastic. It's very, very faithful to the film. Um, it was um, uh, it was written by Larry Siegel, who was one of the regular writers on Mad, and um, and uh, drawn by Angelo Torres, who was one of their regular artists. Yeah, it's it's in issue two hundred six of Mad magazine from nineteen seventy nine. But you can find all six pages online, and it's brilliant. It follows the plot of Eyes of Laura Mars very, very faithfully. Except she's called Laurid Mess in what this mess. one, which is great, which is great. And um, and um, yeah, it, it sort of follows the plot, but it does it in Mad Magazine, brilliant parody style, absolutely ruthless. And the one running gag all the way through the thing is that characters keep popping in and talking about, you know, whatever's happening now on, on this page, you know, we're we're working our way up to a really great twist ending, you know. Yeah. And, uh, so so there's really really good sort of running gag about that. So if you're a Mad Magazine fan, do check that out. The other thing, uh, I don't know if you know this, Johan, but there's a remake of Eyes of Laura Mars. No. A Hong, a Hong Kong Category Three film from 1992 called Passionate Killing in the Dream. What a title. <laughs> It's outrageous. It's outrageous. Uh, you've got to track this down. Uh, it's got an actress called um, Mishika Nishiwaki as as the Laura character. She's called Miss Sharsha, which is fantastic. What a name. Sharsha Heels. <laughs> I love Walters it. Fashion. And uh, so it's all set in Hong Kong. It's directed by Parkman Wong. It's called Passionate Killing in the Dream. And it's basically the plot of Eyes of Laura Mars, High fashion photographer takes photographs of models in disarray and a state of distress and and in violent tableau. She has visions about murders. The killer seems to be getting closer and closer to her as it slashes, the the killer slashes their way through the the swathe of people around her, the models and and Mm. confidants and so on. So it's exactly the same plot of Isaac Laura Mars, except as well as being a high fashion photographer, Miss Sharsha is a kung fu expert. Of course she film, is. The film stops every 15 minutes for her to put her martial arts moves on everyone. 
So, so <laughs> why am I having this funny thought now? Imagine this in the Faye Dunaway version where halfway through there's just a bunch of goons come in <laughs> and say, like, I'm going to get you. Sure, Kung Fu. <laughs> yeah, Faye, Faye goes into her wardrobe, comes out with, with karate gear on her black belt, <laughs> tied very chicly around her waist, you know. And yeah, goes goes into praying mantis stuff. That's hilarious. Know? I can imagine that being sort of. I, I imagine that being a studio's choice. Going, look, we need to sell this to the Americas. So let's America loves us for kung fu. Let's add some kung fu into this yeah, this yeah. this movie, which isn't supposed to have anything to do with that. It's 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 ballsy. I'll give them that. Yeah, and and it doesn't fit at all. But that's that's the joy of it, you know. The, so yeah, we've got Laura Mars or Miss Sharshar or whatever she's called in this one. Yeah, doing do, putting all these martial arts moves on everyone. It's 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 fabulous, and you you you've got to trace it and check it out. Passionate killing in the dream. Maybe we could do a sequel to this where we cover yes. that on the trash tapes. I would love that. It's like I would love to. Once I watch it, I'm going to say like, look, we have to talk about these random kung fu scenes in this kind of <laughs> in this in this melodrama. Let's do that. I I think it's, that's great. It's, it's also it's also got fantastic subtitles as Hong Kong films often do. Um, all the way through the film people keep referring to each other as son of bitch son of, Not bitch. Son of a bitch but son of bitch and the very very best subtitle on there um following a, an attempted same-sex seduction scene sure. is uh miss sharshar announces catherine is a nasbian a nasbian <laughs> n-a-s-b-i-a-n that's a that's a that's a new word i didn't even expect to hear yeah, today yeah. So, yeah, Passionate Killing in the Dream. Check it out. And, uh, yeah, Laura Mars goes Kung Fu. Laura, which I love. This is the thing. That's if Laura Mars went full-blown trash, basically. Yeah, that sounds yeah, like... It, if- it is. It is. That's that's the movie that we, we have managed to avoid talking about today. It's the film that Laura Mars could have been and managed to avoid being. And so that is the end of our review of The Eyes of Laura Mars, a great examination of high-class trash. I would like to thank Daryl Buxton for his amazing insight and for just being the walking film library that he is. It makes my job a lot easier when my guests come so well prepared. Now, what do you think? Do you have a different vision about this film? Is it just a sleazy slasher film, or does it really have something else to say? Please feel free to write your interpretation of the film on our social media and share this episode with others. We would love to hear from you all. For those who are curious, I'd recommend watching this movie twice and see if it really does provide a whole new perspective. And with that, this film essay is closed. And we will return soon with another not-so-trash review. See you all next time, cinephiles. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode and hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it around with movie lovers you know, maybe add a star rating or write a good review. All of this helps with the algorithm and provides us with more opportunities to reach the ears to a whole new bunch of bad film fanatics. Want to find out more about us? Then head over to our socials where we provide sneak peeks and up-to-date news on everything nostalgic and trashy. You can find our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages in the description. So please, follow us. See you next time, cinephiles. Cinephiles.